welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The U.S. economy suffered the worst period ever in the second quarter, with GDP falling a historic 32.9%. Neither the Great Depression, nor the Great Recession, nor any other slump over the past uh, two centuries have, have ever caused such a sharp drain on the economy. And the response uh, to the COVID-19 pandemic has left this country dead last, literally dead last among all nations, most of which have been able to avoid both health and economic disaster. The federal moratorium on uh, evictions has lapsed and extended unemployment benefits will run out tomorrow. In the New York area, as in much of the country, parents, teachers, and school administrators are debating how or even whether children should return to school in a few uh, weeks. Investigative journalist Bob Henley joins us once again to discuss what's happening in this area and across the country. He covers national and local politics, economics, and policy for Public Radio, Salon, The Chief Leader, and other news organizations. Welcome back to our show, Bob. Thanks for having me. And just when I thought it couldn't get more dismal, it did. <laughs> well, you just filed a, a devastating story for the chief leader about an alarming study out of Stony Brook University that looks at the links uh, between the World Trade Center exposure to the toxins in Lower Manhattan and the and dementia, PTSD, and and cognitive impairment. Uh, and they were uh, they found protein changes in the blood that were consistent to what's found in Alzheimer's patients. What yeah, even is, uh, Go ahead. Yeah, well, I guess yeah, it's just it will be out in newsstands next week and uh, and online sometime uh, later this week. It uh, it is really something that um, there's you know it, you hear these anecdotal reports of individuals having these cognitive impairment issues. And um, just to give people a sense of the scale of what we're talking about, there's roughly some half million individuals that had exposure to World Trade Center toxins, about 100,000 first responders. And uh, this, this research study um, looks at um, these kinds of, uh, what may have been because of the exposure to these toxins at Ground Zero, which we know have created some, uh, helped uh, facilitate the growth of some 68 different cancers. Now what we're seeing is that there may be a connection between altering of blood chemistry and uh, that there's a tie-in between PTSD, which roughly around 12,000 first responders who are in the World Trade Center Health Program um, are dealing with, and um, this issue of uh, a more profound longer-term uh, dementia and a potential Alzheimer's condition. Um, this is something that, you know, you have many of these folks may have multiple conditions. So they're dealing with uh, a respiratory issue and then a circulatory issue, a cancer, and then potentially something like this. And so, you know, it and, is, and, and it you is, say also not just neurological, but also psychological. Right. And that's the other thing too, is that in this, in the creation of the 9-11 uh, VCF fund, which is this uh, special master thing that offers compensation to the families of first responders and even survivors, and that's another group we should talk about, the hundreds of thousands of individuals 
uh, like the school children and the citizens and the residents who lived in Lower Manhattan, people that commuted into Lower Manhattan, um, those folks. Um, and one of the things, though, in crafting legislation in which some advocates believe was a serious limitation is that when Congress finally uh, settled on the formation for this compensation fund, they expressly carved out PTSD and mental health issues. And uh, meanwhile, the World Trade Center Health Program does provide treatment for some of these issues. And so we see here um, one of these examples where we have this built-in bias, if you will, that mental health um, is actually anyone who makes a mental health claim is a malingerer. And so now this study, which goes a long way to show an actual biological connection where there's been a change to blood chemistry, will hopefully move the needle so that folks who've been suffering like this will see better care and compensation. But I will say that it's analogous really to the broader conversation we're having about COVID because uh, right now the entire United States is really a lower Manhattan in the sense that we have um, uh, hundreds of thousands of civil servants, first responders, and healthcare professionals who are in a similar situation to the first responders and, and survivor community in lower Manhattan um, after Christine Todd Whitman um, uh, said that the air was safe to breathe in lower Manhattan. And so people were once again guided by false government guidance. And we are now living, as this study proves, with the long-term consequences uh, of a lie, which is ostensibly was told to open the markets. And here we are again, Leonard, almost 20 years later with a similar tragedy that's uh, evolving on a much larger scale. And Mayors Giuliani and Bloomberg encouraged people to return to Lower Manhattan very soon. They even didn't they even set up offices, city offices down there to encourage people to go there. Well, it's even I mean, one of the things that happened was, of course, City Hall and the traditional governance, the, the center of of uh, New York City politics has always been down there. But uh, there was an entire economic development strategy that was developed to encourage urban homesteading. Uh, I mean, you had, um, you know, folks, uh, the UFT um, in a civic minded move went and moved their headquarters down there to, to lower Broadway. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. It was kind of like a barn raising and, and people did it out of a sense of altruism, a sense that, uh, but they didn't have all the information. And, and one of the things that um, is just, uh, it, it's, there's such a strange parallel here because one of the things that Rudolf Giuliani did uh, in the immediate aftermath, because he was complicit in this Bush administration decision uh, to tell people that there was, you know, the air was safe to breathe, was he actually um, forced some 19,000 school children and some mm -hmm. 2,500 teachers and support staff into dozens of schools in the zone. And that includes, and people should know this who listen, that this zone we're talking about includes portions of Western Brooklyn, which a lot of people aren't aware of. And, and so Chinatown. Manhattan, Western, pardon? Chinatown, Little Italy. Well, Chinatown, and then even, like I say, into the heights of Brooklyn. And so... This, uh, you know, the other thing, too, is a very small percentage of the survivors have ever been screened. So we have a lot of people that have these World Trade Center issues in the midst of COVID. And that's the other thing here is that folks that have an underlying World Trade Center condition, respiratory, circulatory or whatever, are at a higher risk because of the coronavirus. 
And so that's how this is all connected. And, you know, in many ways, uh, if you substitute uh, CDC for EPA and the CDC is fighting guidance, remember we spoke so early on months ago, seems like a lifetime ago, actually 150,000 lifetimes ago, when the CDC initially told health professionals that they should totally disregard past protocols and uh, use N95 uh, masks. Uh, not just for one clinical encounter, which is the standard, right? You in, interact with an infected patient and then throw it away. Oh, no, no, no. To help uh, President Trump with his inventory control because of the scarcity that they let happen, they told people to hold on to these masks and we used them for a week at a time. And at the time, the nurses and healthcare professionals predicted in press conferences this would lead to the proliferation of the disease and for the hospitals to become a vector for the spread of the virus. And sad to say, um, any number, we don't even know how many healthcare professionals have paid with their lives. We don't even keep a central registry. We're churning through these people so fast. On another front, on uh, Tuesday evening, NYPD officers leapt from unmarked uh, an unmarked minivan and black bagged a protester. Uh, the sort of thing that we've been seeing in Portland, are New York City police adopting the, those uh, federal agent tactics? Uh, are they more well, conservative I, than their counterparts in Portland or other urban centers? I, I think that um, this is, uh, you have to, I don't know, you can take one circumstance that involves the application of what is clearly unconstitutional and abusive practices and make a broader analysis. But it's clear that we're in a situation now where law enforcement across the country, um, there's, there's a division within it, which is problematic. Within these command structures, you do have people that are adherents of uh, the Donald Trump worldview and that has at its core um, this kind of anti-immigrant racist analysis of where we are. And then you have within those same organizations, and I know these people, people of conscience who entered into law enforcement out of a, out of a commitment to serve society. And so in our current uh, climate, these institutions reflect the same uh, lack of overall vision and, 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 um, and, and continuity that is causing a breakdown across the country in terms of these institutions. And in some ways, churning up things that have long existed, like we, the systemic racism that is evidenced in local policing is something that New York City is very familiar with. I mean, we had hundreds of thousands of stop and frisks, um, and that was just considered part of preserving uh, social order, right? And then it, we somehow were conditioned, the mainstream press made it seem that that was a fair exchange for a declining a murder rate. And so uh, now all of this is being upended in a period of time of unprecedented change, which offers us both this, this, this strange mix of great um, risk and potential reward all at the same time. Well, if we didn't have people video, you know, recording these things on their phones, we probably wouldn't know what really happened. The NYPD issued a statement, quote, when officers from the Warren squad took the woman into custody in a gray NYPD minivan this evening, they were assaulted with rocks and bottles. Now, one of my producers reviewed the video that went viral and says that he saw no evidence of rocks or bottles being thrown. So, and on top of it all, uh, the 
the, the police had said they they had a minivan had borne no identification. So right. how should protesters respond when unidentified armed men emerge from an unmarked vehicle and and then push them into a car, into this unmarked well, vehicle? That's the key thing. That's why groups like the work being done by the National Lawyers Guild and the Minnesota Liberties Union uh, is so essential. And so people have to be um, really mindful about their surrounding environment and be prepared at a moment's notice to document what's occurring. I would also suggest that it's very important that if you're going to be involved in any kind of protest, that you not be intoxicated. And so that people have to have be very mindful when they're making um, a stand uh, for principle and, and to protest the abuses of local, uh, county, or federal government. You have to bring your best consciousness forward because you may be called upon in a moment's decision to make um, a call, a judgment call, um, that will be the most important in your life. Now, the mayor, Mayor de Blasio, said it was, quote, the wrong time and the wrong place to arrest a protester in an unmarked vehicle. Um, how do the police view statements like that from the mayor? Are they seeing him as, as a, an enemy of sorts? Well, I see, the, the problem is that there is no unifying um, ethical vision that guides the mayor. So that gets into trouble. So he takes terms takes turns placating constituencies. That's the way he balances the scale of reality. And so, uh, you know, he will, depending on the barometric pressure and how he determines the wind is blowing, he'll make a spontaneous utterance that he hopes helps him out at the end of the day. Um, and so there really isn't a core there there. Um, and so I just think that, um, and this is, this is uh, manifest, it's very clear because he will say, uh, for instance, there was the, uh, the incident very early on where we had the police cars ramming into the crowd, right? And in that mm -hmm. case, he, he aligned himself with the police. So I, I don't think that they, I think it's kind of actually irrelevant, quite frankly, to the overall political moment. Uh, I'm speaking on Leonard Lopate at large with Robert Henley, who uh, covers national and local politics, economics, and policy for Public Radio Salon, the chief leader, other news organizations. You can uh, find him on Twitter at Stuck Nation. Well, we're seeing things like this, of course, in other parts of the country. Attorney General William Barr defended the federal response to protests. And I'm wondering how much have polls been taken about public opinion uh, about this uh, police behavior in, in Portland and Seattle? Because I, I was thinking in January 2016, an armed group of far-right extremists led uh, by, uh, what was it, Alton Bundy, seized uh, and right. occupied the headquarters of the uh, the uh, Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon. And um, they the, the Trump was, and Barr, well, Trump was already president for part of that time. Uh, they didn't send in federal agents, did they? No, no, this is, I mean, you're getting at the core issue here of the use of the Portland adventures by the federal forces really to create campaign footage for uh, the president of the United States. And so uh, what is important, you know, they are, uh, all of this is based on a risk threat matrix that it's really uh, not 
you know, it doesn't, if you look at the facts, it's not borne out. And so just to give you a sense of how absurd this is, consider that we just had, um, and it was played as a local story, a circumstance in North Brunswick, I guess it was two weekends ago, where the, the 20-year-old son of a sitting federal judge, es- Judge Esther Salas's sure. son was shot in, in their home. This judge was the first Latina judge appointed to the bench in New Jersey by President Obama, a respected jurist who was targeted by an individual who was a Trump partisan who had actually sued major media organizations because he felt uh, alleging that the media personalities and the organizations were part of an illegal conspiracy to deprive Donald Trump of the presidency. He was a, 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 he's, but he's a, been described a, a, as an anti anti woman, a woman hater. Yeah, well, uh, is, they, yes, they never talk rants, about that other online. aspect. The, Excuse well, me? And the rant, the, you know, the rants online specifically, this tracks so much like President Trump's rants against the sitting federal judiciary. And this is something that has this has resulted in a dramatic increase from something like 900 threats against judges. To, uh, to over 4,000, okay? And so we don't hear much about that. We don't hear about this character who, who pulled this off, nor do we hear much about the fact that we had a, uh, a active duty Air Force sergeant, part of the Boogaloo Boys, assassinate an African-American, uh, Patrick Underwood, who was a, a, a uniformed DHS Federal Protection Service officer, protecting the Ron Dome's courthouse in Oakland. So if you actually look at who is, who is shooting people and who is dying, it is, it is this right-wing contingent, self-styled or organized. And that's really the threat to public order, but we don't see it being addressed. We don't even actually see the president even asked about um, the, uh, the shooting of a sitting judge's son uh, they by 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 a supporter. No one in the White House press corps even bothered to ask the president. And this guy's tweets and his whole social media platform dovetail perfectly with Trump's. But right wing crazies aren't responsible for all the shootings, the the murders, the burglaries, auto thefts that are that uh, are up uh, across New York City. Does anyone have an explanation for what's happening? Because the police well, claim that we're seeing the effects of bail reform. Well, let's let's unpack that, shall we? So it's a question of how long you've been on the planet. So if you were a reporter from like the late 1970s and 80s, like myself, you know that at one point we had 2,200 murders a year, right? You remember those days, Leonard, right? I do. Right. Okay. So in terms of context, you know, we're down in the hundreds. It's dramatically reduced. And yet we focus on, I'm not saying there's not a, um, an important trend here that needs, that needs to have attention paid to it, but don't swallow the, the New York Post's, you know, fear-mongering hook, line, and sinker. Yes, there's a need for intervention, and we've seen the country awash in guns in a way that we've never seen before. And by the way, that's continuing. One of the very disturbing trends in the pandemic has been the millions and millions of first-time gun owners that we've had that are now, that in many states, guns were deemed, the industry was deemed essential 
And mm-hmm. so we've seen an off-the-chart response. As the central federal government fails to have a unified professional public health response, individuals are increasingly turning to weapons, which does not bode well for the fall. And you point out that uh, you wrote an article in which uh, you point out that gun sales are up in this country right now. Yeah, and uh, said, it's a lot. You said gun stores in the U.S. are reporting a surge in sales of firearms uh, because they say coronavirus fears are triggering personal safety concerns. Well, here's the thing. If you have and this is why it's so important for people to develop an independent sense of what their their situational awareness is, is a strategic term. Right. What is really going on? If you are going to watch MSNBC and if you're going to watch Fox or CNN and you have had your the, your video camera stuck on Portland, on one neighborhood in Portland, morning, noon, and night, 24-7, why well, you do think Armageddon is here. However, if you get out of your house some, you walk down the street with your mask on, of course, and encounter the reality of the world, you see it's not quite that way. And so we have a situation now where we have a media machine that is motivated and and, uh, enabled by alarming people as much as possible, but not really informing them. You've also written about the uh, federal moratorium on evictions running out last Friday. Rent is, is due in days for millions of New Yorkers and for millions more across the United States. How is the end of the moratorium affecting renters in and around New York City, which is uh, a, a special case. Uh, a lot of people rent here. Well, here, here's the thing. That federal moratorium, that's, let's, we need to unpack that a bit because what existed was if you happen to be in housing that had some kind of federal mortgage underlying it, then there was some protection in terms of, you know, if it was tied into uh, a federal loan guarantee. Uh, but or Section 8 housing or something like that. But for many, many people, and, and this is part of the problem, if, if we've had a patchwork response from a public health standpoint in the, in the national situation, uh, we've had the same kind of approach when it comes to the economy. So it very much depends where you are. You have Governor Inslee in Washington extending the moratorium, and then uh, in, in Nevada, I understand that they lifted it. Here in New York, it, it, they are. Um, it's a question of there's a there's interplay between when the courts open up, and when the government can actually, you know, the, in the city of New York, they will provide you counsel. But here's the thing: there's a million and one ways that landlords can begin to do uh, to drive people out of their housing, even if there's technically a moratorium on court proceedings. So you know, it very much depends on where you live. And and this is why it's so important for people to organize. I mean, uh, this is uh, and the nation did some very good reporting on this. There have been cases where uh, neighborhoods have pulled together around individuals and families and supported them and resisted eviction. This is something that uh, was very common during the depression. This is a part of the lost. You know, if you if you uh, read um, any kind of history that talks about what happened during the Depression, you'll see that it wasn't uncommon for farmers to organize. And when the sheriff uh, came to do a foreclosure, particularly in the upper Midwest, farmers would show up and uh, dissuade the sheriff from going forward with the sale. This is the level of organization that has to happen. I, I monitored a, 
a, a Zoom conference with uh, uh, Congresswoman um, Ocasio-Cortez and the uh, Congressman, uh, I guess, Will Bowman, we, we expect to win, but he's, he beat Engel. And they were taking um, uh, renters uh, through a step-by-step process and had to actually pull together and organize. And so this is something where there's, a, there's an opportunity here where, where renters do have leverage and they have to use it, but that can only happen if they work in a coordinated fashion. The uh, NYU Furman Center reported that about 1.2 million renter households in New York State have at least one tenant who's lost work during the pandemic. Do they get special uh, dispensation or uh, doesn't that matter? It's a patchwork. And and I think that, I mean, the key thing here is that this is an example of where we we need really immediately a, a universal basic income because what's happened is Individuals who are working find themselves, if they're part of the essential workforce, in a difficult situation where someone in their house uh, may have a pre-existing condition, or people have had to um, leave their home, continue to support the household, but can't go back because being an essential worker, whether it be in healthcare, delivery services, or groceries, means that they're exposing themselves. And so, one thing that, and that's the whole the problem here is that even what they're debating now in Congress is too small bore for the scale of the calamity that we face. And in your open, which really laid out the basics, that's the point here, is that any parallel, you clearly can't make a comparison to the Depression, because if you look at these numbers, and we didn't keep data the same way, so for uh, uh, comparisons are a little flawed, but suffice to say that it took from 1929 until for a few years until like the bonus march in 1932, when things, uh, when the country was really at its its uh, low point. This has happened to us in just a couple of quarters. And so what's happened is even the measurements that we have, it's, I've said this before, it's like being in a small plane or any plane where you're going down so fast that your altimeter is pinned. So they need to uh, really think much bigger uh, we need to think about what was done in Europe, where they just funded the payrolls in order to lessen the damage. But again, they had the radical notion of a universal national response, which is what Trump has decided against. Trump has created a situation where he's pitting the states against each other, where he is working against the containment of the disease, because he believes as a core uh, principle that herd immunity which has been revealed to be something that doesn't exist in this instance, and certainly not something that they understand well enough to be able to base policy on, he believes that herd immunity is the way through the crisis. And his fellow traveler, Boris Johnson, went with that and then made it, had to make a turn when he almost died as a consequence. And so as long as you have a national policy that is driven by someone who believes that the best thing that can happen is for this thing to be spread far and wide, you're going to have a dysfunctional response. Well, the Republicans are willing to extend unemployment benefits, uh, some of them anyway, but want to cut them by $400 from $600 to $200. Well, New York and New Jersey are expensive areas to live in. Uh, even those $600 uh, really didn't pay the rent. Medium rent for a studio uh, is around $2,700 in Manhattan, $3,000 in Brooklyn. Well, uh, $600 would barely cover rent in the least expensive neighborhoods. 
Well, I mean, this goes to the reality that before the pandemic, we existed in a winner-take-all economy where the Federal Reserve tells us that uh, 40% of Americans could not find $400 without borrowing it. That was before the pandemic. We've been in this kind of winner-take-all situation for quite a while. And that's why, for instance, there really wasn't uh, a recovery. People who listen to this there know that. They know that African-Americans saw the greatest loss of household wealth and a huge number of foreclosures all through the supposed recovery. And so, and this really transcends party ideology or, or labels, right? For, for generations now, both parties have participated in the destruction of working class America and have profited fabulously from it. And so anyone with any historical memory understands that we got here as a consequence of a collaboration by both parties. You don't dismantle the entire manufacturing base of the United States without this coordination. It's no accident that all that we had to finally, uh, China's the place that we realized ventilators and PPE were, was made. That was a deliberate tax policy that actually rewarded the dismantling of American industry, both critical and non-essential, overseas. We funded that with tax breaks and then proceeded not to tax the profits of the multinationals that now have actually gone beyond anything that the United States can do in terms of accountability. So that's where we are. And right now, you see the wealthiest, this always happens at times of great scarcity, the wealthiest get wealthier, and the masses sink further into an abyss. And we'll talk more about that after we take a little break. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York. 99.5 FM. And before I get back to my conversation with Bob Henley, I'd like to take a moment to ask you to support WBAI. All independent media are in a difficult position because of the pandemic, but we're a small public radio station that relies totally on the generosity of our listeners, so we're in a particularly difficult spot. That's why we're asking our most committed listeners to, even if you're not totally committed, but uh, you like what you hear sometimes, uh, to please step up right now and go to our website, give2wbai.org. That's give and then the number 2wbai.org or call 516-620-3602, 516-620-3602 to help keep, keep WBAI and Leonard Lopate at large on the air. And one great way to support the station and give us the kind of enduring support that we need throughout the year is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And you can do that by making a monthly contribution of any amount, $10, $15, whatever you wish. And it'll, it'll be taken out of your savings account or your checking account or your credit account until you say, no, I, I don't want to do that anymore. Um, Bob, I'm, I'm going to bring you into this. You know as well as anyone uh, the need to support public media at a time like this, don't you? You used to, you, you've worked well, in public yeah, media. I, 
I, I have worked, yes, and I've been fired by Pacifica, uh, uh, I guess, uh, every 10 years. I make it a point to be fired. Um, yeah. Join I mean, the club. No doubt that. Right, <laughs> exactly. I think that, and particularly BAI is, is uh, I would say, in terms of public media, because public media, you know, you have your, your corporate public media, and then you have this authentic kind of community-based uh, public media, and and that's really essential. And so what you have is um, opportunities for uh, individuals who are committed, uh, who are passionate about issues, to actually be producers, right? To actually pull together their constituency and their community, and to uh, create programming that's relevant to their community that serves their community. And so I think that that's something that is not emphasized enough that this is it's not just what you hear but the ability to have a mechanism where people can have access to mass media and communicate and play a role in shaping their own history and i will tell you that all the struggles that we've seen and and this uh, the amazing service today with congressman lewis is an example all of this that's been going on it has its roots on things that were heard on pacifica they were referenced on Pacifica since I've been on the planet. And so it's really a part, it's about continuing a platform that has the independence to be able to hold those in positions of power accountable. All too often in public media, what we have is this very strange pas de deux where public radio feigns to be progressive. But if you look at the board of directors, if you look at the funding, you'll find Purdue Pharmaceutical. You'll find the Koch brothers. You'll find those same forces now that are supporting President Trump. And so this is a unique species of public radio, authentically community-based and run. And with that in mind, a reminder that the number to call is 516-620-3602, or you can go to our Website, give to WBAI.org. And please make sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us at the station, thank you. So let's get back to what you were talking about. Uh, the economic prospects for cities and states have been um, clouded by drastic declines in tax revenues. But millionaires and billionaires are doing very well financially. Have Governor Cuomo, Governor... Murphy, Mayor de Blasio proposed targeting uh, tax increases at the wealthy who are profiting? Well, it's actually uh, what we've seen is uh, I saw a city and state this morning had out a report about Governor Cuomo actually splitting with the progressives on this issue, progressive wing on this, and, and discussing, you know, taking the point of view that he didn't want to tax the rich. Um, there is. So I mean, what reason has he given? Pressure. Oh, well, they're always afraid that they'll leave. I mean, that's always the thing is that well, they, we have arranged our entire lives around the whims of the wealthy for fear that we not agitate them and they might leave us. Right. You know the song. Well, right? many of them so have left, but they've moved upstate or they've moved to Long Island. Uh, I guess some are moving to New Jersey, but uh, many of the people leaving the city have been wealthy New Yorkers with, with second homes, which is actually, uh, and this is not part of our conversation, leading to perhaps a problem with the census because uh, there are some areas that are going to be underrepresented because people aren't there right now. 
Well, this whole question of place and wealth has a long history. And the reality is that we've had a circumstance now for, oh, I guess, guess like 20 or 30 years where great wealth on the scale of Michael Bloomberg and the rest it really is stateless in the sense that through limited liability corporations and through holding corporations and offshore um, places, and you have dozens and dozens of different countries competing to draw capital, and they all try to outdo each other with you know, secrecy. And so that's the nature. You have a situation now where increasingly great wealth makes demands on the nation, state, or local government. Because they're in the, the relationship is all wrong. So the power relationship is the the public interest and 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 government is is you know they're in a situation where they'd rather have profligate gambling than upset the rich. So we now have this pernicious thing where in our lifetime the government went from arresting people that were gambling. I was considered a vice back when we had when we had respect for people. And now it's considered as a way to fund a non-victimless crime, like it's not a crime, but a way to fund government. So that's how this whole debate about revenue and uh, and, and government expense has been playing out. I, I will say that there is precedent for an excess profits tax, and that's something we need to revisit right now. You do have these folks like Bezos and these other folks that are getting this windfall because of the nature of what's happening, and it is in the public interest and fits in with any kind of uh, sense of equity and social justice that they have an excess profits tax. We need to put that in place right away. It should have been done. It should have been done from the beginning. Once we knew that this was going to unravel like this, because here's the problem is that the way it's going now, they're going to have, this thing is collapsing so fast that they're, they're not going to be able to long-term damage here. They're taking something that could have taken a couple of years. Now, if they don't deal with the remedy, this is going to have generational consequences. Well, actually, the, the, it took World War II to end the Depression. Uh, are you suggesting it might even take longer in this case? Absolutely. And I, and I, and the, and I think that just look at the underpinnings of it in the sense that we really still haven't felt the impact of the readjustment that's happening in terms of real estate. You had an entire um, uh, macroeconomy that was based on location, location. And so you have entities that have hedge funds that have borrowed and uh, are speculating on leases for office buildings. And we have a mall in New Jersey that uh, Xanadu, AKA American Dream, Two million square feet. Uh, it's a crime scene visible from space. The state mm. thought that was a good idea. Pour all that concrete. So imagine th th that across the entire United States, with the entire mechanism for business radically changing overnight. Well, what are you going to do with all of that that investment that was made and all those bad bets? And so that's the scale, and that's just one aspect. That's just commercial real estate. We're not talking about what's going to happen in terms of long-term issues that are related to pensions and in terms of all the mechanisms that we've put in place for long-term financial security. I mean, this is much bigger than it's being communicated to people. And as a consequence, 
and I said this before, the decisions and the policy remedies are wholly inadequate. Does it matter that some of the uh, the Democrats actually have been quite wealthy on their own? Phil Murphy became wealthy at Goldman Sachs. Uh, what's his position on higher taxes for people like himself in New Jersey? He's been generally, he's been, I would say, honest. He's to the left of Cuomo, so that he's been more willing to entertain that. But the Goldman Sachs mentality does stick with him. There was a provision to have a, um, a moratorium on evictions for small businesses, which he vetoed. And so, you know, um, there is a problem when you have people that um, uh, are out of that Wall Street mindset and, and the contributors, the Wall Street contributors, who actually have such oversized influence um, driving the policy discussion. And so you don't even, I mean, the fact, for instance, that we are not talking about implementing immediately on an emergency basis, universal health care for all, that that's still like some kind of talking point that we'll get to at the platform committee meeting just shows you how disconnected from the deteriorating situation of the American people the policymakers are. You need to immediately have universal health care in place because it's the only way to catch up for this uh, lack of a national response that's coordinated to COVID. In a recent Salon article, you argued that the Trump administration is making the super rich even wealthier during the pandemic. Uh, how? They're not making money, uh, well, they're not making well, money from- Where do you want to pick? It's, it's so, you know, we only have like a few minutes, right? But here's the thing, just let's take meatpacking, all right? So we have a situation where we know that meatpacking, because of the nature of it, um, you have to have workers work elbow to elbow because of the nature of the production lines. All right. So these places become a hotbed for outbreaks for coronavirus. You also have undocumented folks working there who have been uh, bearing uh, a higher incidence of, of COVID, both in terms of incidence and mortality. So rather than cooperate with local officials and try to uh, institute uh, testing and uniform standards, to protect the public health and worker health, Trump actually bigfoots the whole thing, shuts it down, makes it possible for meat production to continue, gets all of the federal regulators to back off, and to make sure that the meat companies do exactly what they want to do on the terms and conditions in something that would have Upton Sinclair flipping in his grave. Okay, and so what? And what did they do? They're selling the meat to China. That's the punchline. So that's just one industry. There isn't one place that Donald Trump has and his minions haven't blocked and tackled for the worst of uh, the vulture capitalists. And in times of scarcity, the table already runs in their direction, right? We know that what ends up happening is people who have limited means then begin to liquidate what holdings they have, and who's there to pick it all up? but the local monsters and the kleptocrats who were running things to begin with. And that's what's happening now, is that you have this, this, uh, this centrifugal force. It's, it's, it's actually people just who don't have enough are finding themselves increasingly desperate. And you have profiteers who are making money on PPE who no doubt know our friends with the president. That's where we are. That's, it's, it's, it's kind of like... A, a 21st century feudalism. Jeff Bezos of Amazon, Tim Cook of Apple, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, and 
Sundar Pichai of Google testified before Congress yesterday. Did they say anything that pertains to the crisis? Well, what the, their whole argument here is that they don't need to be regulated. Their whole goal line stance is that the way that things are now has has created this tremendous opportunity and anything that gets in its way is going to prevent it from working its magic. Um, and I, what I will say is that um, one of the things about this is that the conversation about big tech um, it has to be brought back into the line connection with taxation because that's one of the greatest um, transfer of wealth that happened. And here you have a technology which, when you look at it, was developed with uh, through the Pentagon and through taxpayer subsidized research, and now is deployed in a way that increasingly benefits just a handful of people. And so I just don't, um, I just, I just don't think that. Um, and I'll give you an example. Right here in New York City, we're seeing a situation where you have Charter Spectrum, right, which is a which is a monopoly here, that just locked out uh, local three workers for years now, and is you know uh, totally anti-worker. And yet, you know, they have millions of dollars, they have lobbyists, and so we just can't seem to get our arms around holding any of these characters accountable. And so the, the show that I, and I don't think that Congress is particularly coordinated in the way they went after this either. Now, COVID-19 doesn't care whether you're Republican or a Democrat. Conservative Republican Louis Gohmert of Texas has tested positive for COVID-19. And then a staffer for Florida Republican Representative Vern Buchanan died last week. Uh, Buchanan is one of the more centrist Republicans, but it sounds like he still supports Donald Trump and and uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And then we have some GOP governors like Bill Lee of Tennessee saying they they have no intention of shutting things down again, regardless of the extent of the pandemic. Um, <laughs> all of this befuddles me just a little bit. Don't they realize? Well, I mean, well, and then there are people saying the whole, still saying the whole thing is a, a hoax. Uh, and uh, somebody uh, recently said that uh, Anthony Fauci, uh, in a conspiracy theory, that, oh, this was uh, what was it? Um, one of the, uh, the conservative broadcast uh, groups. Uh, right. Yeah, they they uh, they were going to run a uh, a documentary that claimed that Anthony Fauci actually created the COVID the uh, coronavirus in a laboratory. Right. Well, and let's, let's review how we got to this place is that what this, um, the erosion of mass media and the news media has been a whole function of, that goes back to Ronald Reagan to the way that uh, broadcast licenses um, were considered a privilege, right? It was something that the public owned the airwaves. And you had the privilege to operate a broadcast outlet. And of course, the subsequent cable and computer outlets have built on that legacy infrastructure. And as a consequence now, um, accuracy, um, a balanced representation of the events, or even for that matter, the responsibility to have public uh, affairs program at all is totally random and based on whatever the owner, because now what's happened is this has become real estate. So the public, this is just, and so now we're in a situation where information and its veracity has never been more important. 
but we really don't have a platform that's reliable, that isn't subject to these analytics that are driven by profit and profit only. And so that's why, to go back to what I was saying before, you're in an environment where MSNBC will run footage of Portland. I mean, it's so crazy that Portland was considered an eccentric place. And now it's the center of America's defining universe. Like, all of a sudden what's going on in Portland is, uh, is emblematic of the entire nation. And, and so when you have a, a, a media uh, complex that is wholly about only enriching itself and selling you the, uh, the uh, items that uh, the advertisers are promoting in between their quote-unquote news, you can't be surprised that you have this, this disconnected uh, situation where people don't have basic information about their public health. And that's why it's so important that people do their own basic research become somewhat scientifically literate about the things that are of, of, of uh, pressing concern and not just be driven by this, what is a fairly cynical use of these platforms to merely drive profits and to try to convince you about the things you already feel strongly about. We've talked in the past about an urban rural divide in this country. Uh, how's that playing out now? Well, you see, and you were you're alluding to it before, there's been many places where um, the idea of coming from New York City or an urban center now is uh, was always, you know, there's some element of potential suspicion. But now you have cases of, you know, people being shunned and ostracized if they're perceived to be a threat to the community. Um, I think of course that, that works uh, both ways. Then now New York right. and Connecticut and New Jersey are ostracizing people who are coming from Florida and Texas. In Georgia, right. Well, and this, well, and this disintegration of the cohesion of the nation must make Mr. Putin very happy. Um, and that's the thing about this is, you know, I saw the tearing of this national fabric start. Um, I mean, it, it has its roots in uh, in in this divide that has been fed by this media machine that that uh, inflames rather than informs. But if you if you look at what's um, the way that um, people perceive what they're what where, where threats are coming from, right? So that's the thing is that you have, and I've done some reporting on this. You know, you encounter people, run to people that are, you know, they seem to be sane, who have uh, raced to get a gun permit here in New Jersey because they're afraid, because the president has told them to be afraid that looters are about to come and take down their local town. And so uh, they're reacting out of that. And so that's, that's how people are judging their situational awareness is on that distorted mirror. And, and this is, a, I saw even the sense of the alienation between regions and political parties. I saw it manifest during the Sandy debate, Leonard. I remember when we had for the first time after a major national disaster, uh, of, of biblical proportions, we had certain states that said, no, we're not going to bail you out. You know, this is just more waste, fraud, and abuse. And so it's been going this way for a long time. The fact, for instance, that Republican governors did not hear or take at face value what they were hearing from their colleagues, Governor Murphy, uh, Governor Lamont, and Governor Cuomo, really goes to the heart of the fact that they just felt that New Yorkers and the people from this region were innately inferior and weren't up to the challenge. And so they discounted 
what they were hearing. So Americans really, here's the newsflash, don't really like each other, Leonard. And then they say crazy things. Uh, we're out of time, but I want to point out Louis Gohmert has suggested that it was because he was wearing a mask that he came down with the coronavirus. So uh, <laughs> there is a lot of weird stuff going on there. Uh, Bob's people can check you out on Stuck Nation and read you yes. in all of these different places. Salon, the chief leader. That's right. Chief leader. That's right. And um, also can direct message me on Twitter. We do. I, I got a lot of great leads. Um, I'm particularly focused on uh, the civil service and first responders and law enforcement because we're not even keeping a central registry um, of their final sacrifice. And across this country, they're answering calls. And and this is what's different about this in 9-11 is that their families are also paying the price. So I'm trying to track these stories and hold accountable uh, management where they're not taking the basic precautions that this level of sacrifice requires. To be continued. Thank you so much for being on our show again. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Hugh Sanson, some who uh, produced today's interview. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org, also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to follow our show pages on Facebook and Twitter. You can also visit our website where there are links to all of our past shows. And if you'd like to send me your comments about something you've heard on the show, or simply to say hello, you can reach me by email at leonardlopate at wbai.org. As I mentioned before, WBAI is currently experiencing major financial difficulties due to the pandemic, and we're asking anyone who isn't already a member or a supporter of the station to please go to our website, wbai.org. Uh, give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow when Associate Professor of Education at the University of Richmond, Dr. Bob Spires, will discuss his article for the conversation entitled How Other Countries Reopened Schools During the Pandemic and What the U.S. Can Learn from Them. See you then.